Welcome to the Love Good Podcast brought to you by our patrons. This is Jimmy Mitchell, your host. Join me each week as I sit down with artists and thought leaders to chat about music, culture, and what we call the art of being human. You see, Love Good's more than a subscription company. We're a movement of artists and patrons who believe in the power of beauty to evangelize our culture. And we're so pumped you're here. Welcome everybody to a very fresh, a very exciting, a very different bonus series on the Love Good Podcast. As you know, season five is behind us. Season six is about a month away. But for the next four weeks, beginning today, I'm sitting down with my very good friend, regular contributor, Father Ryan Adorjan. We're going to be talking very much about one of the biggest influences in our lives, who is C.S. Lewis. In this first episode today, we're really introducing the man who is Clive's Staples, all things C.S. Lewis, and, and just the brilliance and the imagination behind the man who not only created Chronicles of Narnia, but is perhaps the most compelling, certainly one of the most influential Christian apologetics of the last century. And what's really exciting is during each episode, we're going to chat about a different book, or in this case, a different essay by C.S. Lewis. Today, we'll be diving into the weight of glory. In future weeks, we'll be talking about Mere Christianity, one of the great books from Chronicles of Narnia, The Horse and the Boy. And then we'll conclude this series eventually with a conversation about The Great Divorce, which happens to be my favorite book of all time. I'd say there's about five books in that category, books I've actually read three <laughs> different times. And as you can tell, that was a nice little chuckle from Father Ryan. He's already here in the studio live in Tampa. We can't wait to be back in just a moment, but for now, enjoy this beautiful little excerpt of Make an Honest Stand by Kevin Hyder off of his brand new EP. Cause in a world where fools and sinks try to bar the golden door to keep out the huddled masses the tired and the poor where the homeless long for shelter from the chaos of the squalls, how can I raise the flag and love beyond its walls? I'm trying hard to be a better man. All I can do is make an honest stand. Father Ryan Adorjan, welcome to the Love Good Podcast. Thank huh? you very much. On location. On location. Well, tell us a little bit about this location. I think you officially know more about that body of water outside that window than I do. My goodness. We are sitting here in, uh, what is this called? Is this is this the new main Love Good studio? Or are we in a satellite office of, of the Love Good Enterprise? Or At what? the moment, this is the satellite studio. Well, we're at, you can hardly call it Tampa. We're an hour from the city. Sure. We'll just call it Florida. We're in Florida. What are you looking at right now? Palm trees? Right now I'm looking at uh, a, a tree that I cannot identify, but uh, the main body of water right here is is a bayou, B-A-Y-O-U, just so that's uh, how you spell it. Now, Jimmy, you might be wondering, what's a bayou? I am wondering that, actually. When you get guests here, do they ever think that that's a swamp out there? Every now and then, maybe a canal, but never a swamp. A canal. A canal is a man-made you could argue that it's a man-made bayou. See, oh, a bayou really go. is a, a branch off of a lake or a river, or in our case here, the Gulf of Mexico. 
kind of an inland branch of that body of water. Sometimes they're even their own kind of flowing stream or river. But it is itself a kind of body of water, whereas a canal, as I said, is a man-made bayou. That's my own interpretation. Now, if there are civil engineers out there who have a different read of it than me, then I'd love to hear from them. But a swamp, Jimmy, is flooded land, not a body of water. That's something that I learned just recently. And so to be able to have this great view, not that the house in Nashville is unappealing, It has its own character and charm for sure. But there's something about being right off of a bayou and being right off of a major interstate highway. Oh, yes. And that's part of the reason the soundproofing doesn't have to be nearly as intense here because there's literally no sounds out there. Except Except for the koi pond. The koi pond. The trickling neighbor koi pond. Yes, yes. And anybody who's been here knows that that, that's an issue. But right now we're looking at this beautiful little bayou. Beautiful day. Connects to the Gulf of Mexico. It is a perfect day. In Florida, in fact, right now, you're drinking Love Good Coffee. I'm drinking water out of a Love Good Coffee mug. But eventually, we're going to have to graduate to our mason jars. I think we'll have to. It's summertime. I've got uh, Arnold Palmer's waiting for us later. Oh, my goodness. Really? I know. And this is a little bit of a vacation for you, too. You're down here for a few days. Absolutely. Which is great. Absolutely. I'm preparing for a move, my first move as a priest. I'm moving from the, the cathedral in Joliet, which has been a great run in my little parish, Sacred Heart, to Naperville, which seems like every time I say Naperville, everyone says, oh, Naperville, I've heard of that, or I've been there, I have family there, or I got the heck out of there once. So I'm really excited about the move, but but that's going to be a stressful time. So yeah. I'm really excited about these next couple of days and being able to talk to you and talking about C.S. Lewis, who, as we've talked about so many times, there are certain bonders that you and I just right off the bat, you know, for those of you who, by the way, who have ever done Catholic marriage prep and have done the focus survey as part of pre-Cana, you'll know that the word bonders comes from that, things that keep us together. But anyway, right away, I mean, we talked about, people are so sick of us talking about the Ohalos, but I can't help it. But C.S. Lewis for sure was one of them. And I think maybe neck and neck between Michael O'Brien and C.S. Lewis, for sure, for me anyway, although Wendell Berry is kind of approaching very quickly. But there's just something timeless about C.S. Lewis. We've talked about him before in the context of people who are able to write things. And when you read them, you're able to give a scent to what he says. Even if you don't totally understand it, not going to write a dissertation about it or teach a college class about what you've just read, but there's something in it that it is so clearly true. The way that he describes human nature, the way that he describes the person's ability to have a relationship with God, the kind of relationship that God really wants to have, for example, the way that C.S. Lewis talks about these things. And he does it so often, not explicitly, right? He does it through allegory, especially. He does it through the great genres that he was sort of surrounding himself with. His friendship with Tolkien, hugely important, not just in his own religious conversion, but in his view of the world and in his writing, The Chronicles of Narnia, which of course was dismissed by his friends as sort of childishness until they read the whole thing. And then they said, wow, like this is, this is your version of, of Lord of the Rings for sure. So he's such a, an interesting character and I think often misunderstood. So I'm, I'm really gr- grateful to you for this chance to be able to, to do this kind of more dedicated series on him rather than just talking about him in passing. Yeah, I'm excited to learn more about him too. I mean, apart from, 
a couple of visits to the Eagle and Child, you know, the pub there in Oxford sure. where the Inklings would meet. Apart from his relationship with Tolkien, the friendship that they had, the debates, the lively debates they would have about the nature of true fantasy, I'm sure one being Catholic, one being Anglican, there was plenty of theological debate as well. Even apart from knowing, you know, the, the role that Chesterton played in C.S. Lewis coming back to the faith, you know, going from atheism back into the Christian fold, there's very little about his personal life that I really know. You know, I'm, I'm aware that he was married for a few years, but there's a lot of mystery around yeah, that. In a really you know? funny circumstance, yeah. Yeah. And Did you ever see he, the movie Shadowlands? No, I, I think that's on Amazon Prime or something. I've never sure. actually watched it. Yeah. Maybe we'll watch it one of these days while yeah. I'm here. The problem is I, I deleted my Amazon account. Did you know that? Luckily, I have one still. That's crazy. To my great dismay and to the dismay of my income stream as well. Yeah, yeah. I decided for now I'm off of Amazon. It's been crazy. It's, it might be right. But you know what it means? I'm, I'm reading more. I'm reading more than ever. And C.S. Lewis is You're probably- You're reading books you already have. Yes. Imagine that. Isn't that crazy? There's Something 900 I need books to learn. literally on the other side of this wall in my family room. And I think I've read maybe 300 of them. And maybe this is part of what I love about Lewis and Chesterton and Tolkien is I'll never wrap my head completely around their approach to life, their approach to fiction, their approach to the faith even. And I think that's humbling and really helpful when you're trying to live a Christian life, to be constantly surrounded by the greatness and the just the brilliance of others. It keeps me humble. That's why I like hanging around you. So I say we dive in. Let's do it. Tell us the the three to five most important nuggets about C.S. Lewis, his life, his influences, his, his philosophy, his approach to literature. It's important to remember that C.S. Lewis was a man of his time. Now that sounds so cliche, and here's what I mean. C.S. Lewis was born in 1898. So he's born at the very end of the 19th century. He is growing up in England, and he remembers, he's, he, he would be, 20 by the time World War I is over. So he's able to remember a time before World War I and during World War I, and then of course after World War I. And you just have to remember that like you, the effect of World War I on the culture of the West, you cannot overestimate it. I mean, you you just can't. That that they say really maybe that the the, the the chronology of the decades changed, the century changed, 1899 to 1900. But really, it was 1914 when World War I broke out that really signaled the beginning of a new century, a new era in European life and in, the, in, in Western life also. So for him to be able to remember a simpler kind of life and to be remembering the, the great kind of well, the battle of war, and I mean battle in every way possible, the cultural significance of that experience of war, of a world war, uh, until then really unknown, that phenomenon. So that has a great effect on someone's worldview. And so it's important to remember that C.S. Lewis starts as an Anglican, as all English people did. I mean, he was baptized as, as a little kid. And then he decides at a very young age in his teens that he's kind of very skeptical about the faith and then makes that decision that he's kind of a hard and fast atheist. And in that that time of his atheism, oh my goodness, it, it's not that C.S. Lewis was just loafing around in his parents' basement, you know, with his, what did they call those things now? His vape pen. No, he's, he's, writing, he's learning, he's studying because his worldview is being formed, you know, and you, you, you have to 
I've never really read anything about this. It might be interesting, but what was the effect of, of the war on his belief in God and on his worldview? But the interesting thing is that before C.S. Lewis becomes famous, a lot of us think of him either as the writer of Narnia or as a theologian. Your Christianity, problem of pain, he's dabbling in theology, perhaps as a philosopher, the abolition of man, for example, the four loves. People think of him as kind of, like you said earlier, a, a, a kind of protege, if you want, of Chesterton. He's writing extensively articles. He's writing in newspapers and magazines. He's going on the radio. Mere Christianity was an, originally a series of addresses on BBC during World War II. So it's important to remember that that Lewis starts out even as early as 1930. I think 1936 was the year he wrote his first book. And he's writing about English literature. So he's a professor at Oxford of English literature, and he's interested in Renaissance literature also, but his whole worldview is a literary worldview. It's not an atheistic worldview necessarily. That's not what motivates him. What it's, And it's not a Christian worldview either at the beginning, but he begins to put the pieces together toward a Christian worldview but it starts as his role as a teacher and a professor of literature at Oxford. And I think that's so important. And that might be points one through five about C.S. Lewis. That's not true, but one through three at least. Because to understand a person like C.S. Lewis or Chesterton or Newman or Michael O'Brien or Wendell Bear, or any of these people, you have to understand like where did they start and how did it develop? Mm. And so he's always looking at life with a kind of a novelist's attitude. What's the story here? What's the dominant story? What are the dominant themes? How can I create or pinpoint a narrative arc? How can I... So he's doing nonfiction, but he's doing it as a, a fiction writer. Hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. It makes a ton of sense because it's part of the reason I think I've always been more drawn to even his theological writings than... Well, let's just say Thomas Aquinas, you know. I've always had a harder time with nuanced, highly deductive theology, right? Even when you read mere Christianity, certainly when you read, you know, the more obvious, you know, essays like The Weight of Glory that we're going to talk about here in just a moment, there's a poetry even in the prose. You get this sense that you're being invited into a journey, you're a part of this bigger story. And I don't know what it was about Lewis, but I can't read anything by him and not long for heaven. Hmm. He leaves me with this, this holy ache, yeah. both in his theology and his apologetics, as well as, of course, in his, his literature, you know? Yeah. I'm curious. I, I know we got plenty more to talk about when it comes to C.S. Lewis and in a moment, The Weight of Glory, but what was the first book you ever read or the first essay of his you ever read? From a very young age, there's been a copy of the Chronicles of Narnia on a bookshelf in my room. I mean, from the time I was a little kid. And I don't know what we bought it for, but it's a prized possession of mine because it's just been there my whole life. And inside the front cover in my mom's handwriting is my name and hmm. my brother's name, hmm. you know? And that's it. And I just love that. So I always knew about C.S. Lewis that way. But the first book I really ever read by him was Mere Christianity, hmm. which I bought when I was a freshman in college before even I was thinking about seminary. 
And there was a Barnes and Noble across the street from my dorm. And I, I went and I just bought it because I thought I'm good. I'm really going to be a mere, mere Christian, you know? And I was like, what could this be about? You know, I better be really attentive. And I put it away. Hmm. It was so difficult to read. It was very philosophical. It was not what I thought it was. So I put it away. And then a few years later, when I was in the seminary, I picked it up again. And, and because my mind had changed and my worldview had totally changed, and I, I read it and I just peeled right through it. Hmm. So Amir Christianity was the first one. That's cool. Yeah. What about you? It sounds like the exact same story, actually. But I would have only read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a kid. Sure. Maybe once, possibly twice. Got to college, and I had a lot of Anglican professors, believe it or not, at Vanderbilt. Really? And so they were the ones who introduced me to mere Christianity and, and even Orthodoxy by Chesterton. And suddenly it was like a whole new world had opened up for me. But I, I, I muscled my way through mere Christianity. Have not read it all the way through since. I've only read excerpts since that first reading in college. But then suddenly, I'll never forget this. This is the game changers. Screw tape letters for sure. And then the great divorce. Mm. I read it in one plane ride, the very end of a semester abroad, London to Nashville. It changed everything. Something about that book, especially, you know, whatever, 20,000 feet high and crossing the Atlantic Ocean to go back home after how much higher? 50, 40? Yeah, much higher than 20. Yeah, that's for okay. sure. Very, very high. Yeah, because you got to get up above the mountain peaks along the way. Not across the ocean, but, you know. Those mountain peaks those mountain. in the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> Yes. So, did you have a direct flight from London to Nashville? Actually, that would have come later. We've we've only recently had a direct flight, which I'm sure has been obliterated by COVID. There, I don't know. there was before COVID a direct flight from Nashville to London. I'm thinking now it was probably London to Atlanta, where my family was, and where I would have gone for Christmas. But imagine three and a half months of traveling Europe. Your imagination is already on overdrive. I had just finished a five day ski trip with one of my best friends in the Swiss Alps. Oh man! And for some reason, I hadn't picked up the great divorce yet. And so I think it was, you know, four out of the the seven hours on the plane. That's all I was doing was reading that book. And it completely shifted my imagination and my thought about heaven, hell, and purgatory. And I think this is the great genius and the great contribution of C.S. Lewis in my own life is I can't think about faith. I can't simply process, you know, doctrine and not get my heart involved, not get my imagination involved and not long for the ultimate realities, i.e. heaven. Yeah. I think that's been C.S. Lewis's great contribution in my life. Absolutely. When you get to know someone new, and you don't ask this question the first day that you meet them, obviously, but when you get to really know someone or you're interested in, in getting to the heart of a person's story in order to understand their output, so you meet somebody really prolific or you meet somebody who's really like seems well put together or just has an interesting perspective on things and you can tell that there's something deep there in them, the best question to ask is simply, how have you suffered? Mm. How have you suffered? Because this kind of life, this kind of insight, this kind of joie de vivre, as we say, this joy of living, comes only from somebody who has seen the other side of it. Uh, Mumford and Sons, you must know life to see decay, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, mm-hmm. it works both ways. Yeah. To fully appreciate life, you have to see decay. Mm. To see decay, you have to know what life is. Often it's, you're in the middle of decay and you don't even know it. So somebody like C.S. Lewis who in his lifetime is tra- is traversing 
world wars. He's traversing a, a huge change in English culture, a huge change, especially in English academic culture, the Oxford and Cambridge kind of worldview, mm-hmm. totally shifting. Uh, they're kind of going away from God as he's coming toward God. Mm-hmm. And he is sort of mocked for that by his peers at, at, at Oxford. How has he suffered? I, I mean, that is the, the great place to start, I think. But C.S. Lewis would tell you that, that, and this is, is our transition, but C.S. Lewis would tell you that what got him through the suffering was the idea of glory. Mm. That the suffering is not for nothing. That the difficulties of his life, that God allowed him to sort of stray in a way and come back and go away and come back and go away and come back, <laughs> as he does with all of us, you know, because C.S. Lewis learned more about himself and about God from his travailing, you know. His autobiography from the earliest part of his life is called All My Road Before Me, mm. you know. And that's sort of his like worldview. I'm on this great adventure. I'm on this great journey. I'm being led through life. He's saying this in hindsight, obviously, but I'm being led through life and toward somewhere, towards somewhere. This is why Narnia is so satisfying to read. And it, it, because as I said before, it's just true. You just know the way that he talks about Narnia, especially at the end of, of the last battle, further up and further in. That's the call of life. Go further up, you know, go further in and to hear the call to come further up, to come further in. So the desire to go and the invitation to go, my gosh, how often do we have a desire for something and it's offered to us from outside as a totally open freeway into that mm-hmm. place? Mm-hmm. And what is that place? It's a new heavens and a new earth, as you and I talked about this morning, but the weight of glory, the weight of glory. It's glory, yes, but it's it's there, there's a weightiness to this experience. There's a true incomprehensibility to this experience, but the incomprehensibility is measured by the fact that it's a reception of everything we've ever desired. (laughs) It's a reception of everything, a full reception of everything that we've been created and designed to desire and that we do have the capacity already to receive. Mm. And that's something that C.S. Lewis has taught me is that that the, the end goal this relationship with God, this life with God in heaven, of course, but even now on earth is something that like Narnia or like our true home is something that I desire, is something that's being offered to me and is something that I am called to actively receive. And I think as we look around, you know, I'm looking out at this beautiful bayou, I'm looking at some guy fix his boat or something. I don't know what he's doing over there, but we're looking at, people who are enjoying where they are, who are taking care of their daily work. But so many of us, including you know you and I, get so distracted and so caught up in the, the weirdest things and we lose sight of what is being offered and what we actually really desire because we're so busy choosing mammon over God because we're too busy, you know, all these things that we talk about so often. So what do we do, you know? So one of the great, I mean, it's probably one of the most famous quotes from The Weight of Glory. C.S. Lewis says, it would seem that the Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Our desires are not too strong, but they're too weak. When I was in the seminary on a retreat, somebody 
said something like, you know, what do you want out of your faith? And the person responded, I want to go to heaven. And this priest said, you have puny desires. Like what could be greater than to desire heaven? And he said, to desire an intimate and living union with God now. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. Our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, C.S. Lewis says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum or perhaps a bayou (laughs) because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Can you imagine, Jimmy, can you imagine if I were or you were a little kid, five years old, and we lived right here and I thought this by you, this view of the boat, the koi pond, the guy over there fixing his boat, like this is the height of beauty. My gosh, wow. We've got the metal seawall. We've got the polluted water. We've got the oil stains floating around in the water. We've got, you know, the sound of golf carts whizzing by with beer cans clanking or whatever. We've got the sound and smell of engines and gas. And I thought, man, this is the height of creation right here. When, if I would take the time to heed the invitation of someone else, to walk out of this driveway, turn right, and walk straight, and I would see the Gulf of Mexico in one second. Blue sky, boats freely, birds swooping, you know? Beautiful blue water. And the option was, you could live there, or you could live here. That, I think, is such a fitting analogy almost for the way that most of us spend our lives. We're Mm -hmm. totally content to live in our metal seawalled world when the joy and, and the openness and the freedom of that view of the Gulf of Mexico, the chance to experience the dynamism of the tides as they come in and out, sometimes the unpredictability. I was really shocked yesterday. I don't know anything about tides, okay? But Yesterday, I was shocked when you seemed surprised at how low the water was. Mm -hmm. As if perhaps the last time maybe you were there at nine o'clock or whatever time it was at night, it was a little bit higher and you expected something different. The dynamism and the unpredictability and the dependence in some way on the tides. To live that life seems a lot more human, honestly, and a lot more adventurous than does this life. I'm looking now at a docked fishing boat. A boat in water, but out of water so that it's safe. Mm -hmm. You see, Mm -hmm. we're like an ignorant child. We want to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, says C.S. Lewis. And so I think that, and I want you to respond to this, but I have, in my own priesthood especially, and in my own life, I am just really coming to this conclusion that A lot of the problems that I get myself into, a lot of the sins that I am attached to, a lot of the the maturing that I, I still need to do comes from a place of saying, I'm far too easily pleased. Mm -hmm. St. Augustine so beautifully says that if you would just ride out your desire 
for like five more minutes, you would be it. You would reach God. You'd find mm. God. Mm. That, for example, I mean, he's obviously writing a lot about lust, his desire for lust or carnal pleasure. And if you don't get off of the highway at lustfulness, you and you keep going, you you'll arrive yeah. at true love. You'll arrive at a fulfilling, intimate union. But you're far too easily pleased for a momentary satisfaction of a carnal desire. Mm -hmm. That's one of the most interesting points from the whole confessions, but that's not what we're talking about. Next year, we'll do one of these on Augustine. What do you think about that? Does that does, That's my interpretation of part of this from Weight of Glory, but does that ring true for you? Yeah, it resonates with me deeply. It's also been the observed experience of this past year working with 830 high school boys. Oh, yeah. Who are easily distracted by carnal desires, as we all once were, and everything as else. Most of us still are. Yeah. Know? So I, I have to say, you know, there's a there's a whole sort of riff in the way of glory where he begins talking about not just as you're putting it, this ability to receive glory, but to perceive it in others. Right. Part of the, if not really at the heart of the joy of this past year of moving down to Tampa, has been you know. 830 young men every single day who have no idea how deep the, the weight of God's glory sort of dwells within them, yeah. you know, and watching it awakened, you know, one soul at a time. He talks about this, you know, this pers pers perspective where if we could see the weight of glory in another person, we'd be tempted to bow down and worship as if they were the blessed sacrament itself. Yeah. Funny that he uses that language given that he's not even Catholic, right? Yeah, yeah. But I have to say that's been the profound privilege of the last 10 months is seeing the weight of God's glory in so many of these young men and recognizing that actually it, it was only a year ago that I thought I was packing up my bags, my apostolic bags. I was kind of ready to close up a chapter of life that was very missionary and very apostolic and very much, you know, dedicated to young people. And I thought I was just kind of going to go be the entrepreneur more full time and maybe eventually get married, settle down, do all the kind of things that you do. Is settle down in your vocabulary? It's really not. Yeah. But I think what was so cool is this very surprise opportunity to come down here. It kept me from, from exiting early. And this is not only true of carnal desires, I think it's true even of the, the spiritual goods before us Absolutely. as we're now beginning to really discern God's will, as you put it, to sift through, you know, all the the gold before us. Well, what, what's the highest good? I could have never anticipated a move to Tampa being the highest good for me. God had to knock me off my saddle for that to even be an option. Yeah. COVID was a big part of that as well. So I have to say it's it's been very true of my experience. Of, of sin and how unsatisfying it is. And if I, if I hang, you know, tough, especially through temptation by God's grace, there will be a greater intimacy, a greater satisfaction right around the corner. I think even beyond sin, it's very, very true in discerning God's will for our lives that there's, there's always more. There's always more than we could possibly imagine. I'm sitting there, you know, after mass this morning with you and I'm journaling in my love good journal with, I think, a Carol Votiwa quote on the back. Love it. And what? Love it. Yeah, it Love was a it. good moment. And I just was a bit overwhelmed. Like joy and gratitude are the only two words that can describe how I feel at the end of these past 10 months. And yet I could have never orchestrated it myself. And all of it was 
sort of this deepening of invitation into the fullness of glory that God is not just calling me to at the end of life once I'm in heaven, but here and now, that the the joy of heaven would begin here and now, that eternity would begin here and now. Yeah. As crazy as it sounds, we, we've actually only got a few minutes left in this episode to talk about the weight of glory. I would love to conclude with a beautiful passage about beauty, which is just very appropriate given love good. But before I do that, what are your last thoughts about the weight of glory? Because all we really hope to do here is get people to read one of the greatest essays ever written by C.S. Lewis. In fact, the edition that I have, maybe the one that you have as well, yeah. is a series of essays. Yep. It just happens to be titled The Weight of Glory because it's the first one in the book. Yep. And it's important to remember that The Weight of Glory was a sermon preached hmm. or an address given. I don't know if laymen in the Anglican Church can give sermons. I don't know. But it was preached at St. Mary's Church in Oxford. Nice. So on June 8th, actually. So today is Whoa. June 1st, so we're almost there. But this is what I want to say. And it's what he says. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Either immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. (laughs) This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. We live, in fact, in a world starved for solitude, silence, and private, and therefore we are starved for meditation and true friendship. Nations, cultures, arts, and civilizations, this is what we give ourselves over to. Mm. This is what we try to please wealth, pleasure, power, and honor. This is what we try to appease, what we try to influence, what we try to create, what we try to undo. But as C.S. Lewis says, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. The weight of glory is what gives us the power to swat away as we so easily swat away a gnat, Hmm. to swat away nations, cultures, arts, and civilizations in favor of the people sitting right in front of us, who reveal to us the person, capital P, who is sitting right in front of us. But nations, cultures, arts, and civilizations can aid that, or they can starve of a a solitude, silence, and private. But that means they can also aid, or they can also starve us of meditation and true friendship, Hmm. which I think he says one of the most beautiful expressions of, of having received and having taken on oneself the weight of glory mm. is true friendship. True friendship on this earth is a foreshadowing of, of a relationship with God that, that God is offering to us. Amen. We got to, yeah, we got to live it. And it changes everything once you have that perspective. Amen. Once you are looking for the weight of God's glory in every soul you encounter, when you recognize that, hey, this person before me may not know this, Right but there's more of God's glory in him or in her than the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon. Than every great, you know, nation that's ever existed combined. Yeah. You know, one individual soul in the state of grace is full of, inf- well, maybe not infinite glory, but just beyond our wildest imagination glory, you know? And it just makes life really beautiful. For sure. Once you have that that lens through which to see and not only a bayou and not only the Gulf of Mexico that will hopefully be riding across tomorrow via boat or jet ski, you know? Can't wait. 
but perhaps most importantly, the souls that we're privileged to encounter and accompany in our brief lives. I'd love to close with this beautiful section on beauty. This was at one point printed about 5,000 times over on a little bookmark that I used to give out at conferences. Love it. I think including the one that we first spoke at together. I think you're right. Which was called? Called by name. Called by name. Five years, six years ago, something like that? Five years, six years. We do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. At the end of the day, that is what I think brings me most joy, especially in the love good world, is that we're constantly allowing ourselves to be bathed in the beauty that is ultimately a signpost to God, uh, a foretaste of heaven, and just a little reminder of that intimate union with God that is possible even here and now. So, uh, Father Ryan, we're just at the beginning of what's going to be a heck of a four-week series. I'm so excited about it. Thanks for coming all the way down to Palm Harbor, Florida, just outside of Tampa, to be a part of this. And uh, we'll see you in a week. See you later. Till then, uh, I'll be in the bayou. Peace. Did you always know you had wings or forgotten such things and found yourself here on the earth? And did you ever wonder why and ask yourself just how high or have you always known what you listening to Fly by Jackie Minton off of our most recent Fireside Sessions. Most of these songs can only be found, in fact, on our YouTube channel. So go to youtube.com slash lovegoodculture and subscribe today. What a beautiful conversation. What a fun beginning of a four-week series of Father Ryan Adorsion. C.S. Lewis, it's very hard for me to imagine if I would even know the Lord as I do or love the faith as I do without C.S. Lewis. He's part of this this family of writers, this family of, uh, I think, intellectual giants from the past century who, you know, in some cases were very much friends, him and Tolkien and the rest of the Inklings, but all of whom, you know, influenced each other. The Everlasting Man, for example, was the book by Chesterton that Lewis read that brought him back into the fullness of the faith. You know, we've released even through Love Good, a couple of beautiful fantasy works by George MacDonald, The Princess and the Goblin, The Princess and Curdie, hugely influential in the imagination of both Lewis and Tolkien. So they were all friends, or at least influenced by each other. And I thought that's exactly what we are as a community, as a movement, Love Good patrons, artists, and even just listeners of the podcast. We band together day in and day out. We stand shoulder to shoulder in this fight for the weight of glory, the, the, the ability to see God's glory in our midst day in and day out. By the way, this is also the right time to announce something very, very exciting, very, very special, and also completely unprecedented. Because of this move that I made to Tampa about a year ago, we are slowly moving all Love Good Things down to Tampa, and that includes our inventory 
And frankly, I just don't have an office or a studio or a warehouse as big down here as we have up in Nashville. And so with that comes a huge opportunity this summer and this summer only to go to lovegoodculture.com slash store and to buy everything, okay? We're talking about the deepest discounts we've ever had. We've even got uh, boxes of Orazio books that you can buy for as little as $1 a copy, especially if you're one of our patrons. Uh, Everything must go. This is the everything must go sale. We've never dropped prices this low on our vinyl records, on our coffee, obviously all of our music books and art. So if you've not visited lovegoodculture.com slash store lately, this is your chance. We'll be talking about it nonstop over the next few weeks, especially on social media. So check it out. Buy Christmas gifts, baptism and confirmation gifts, you know, birthday gifts for the next five years. Because again, the prices will never be this low. Y'all are amazing. We'll be back next week with C.S. Lewis and Father Ryan Adorjan. In the meantime, stay classy. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Love Good Podcast. Share this episode link on social media, leave us a review, and join our movement today by subscribing as a patron at joinlovegood.com. You'll start enjoying our premium content and seasonal packages that not only raise your standard for music, books, and art, but that also inspire you to evangelize culture through beauty. We can't wait to accompany you as you change the world.